Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Zoe Woodall. Zoe is the author of the Giller shortlisted The Best Kind of People, the Lambda-winning Holding Still for as Long as Possible, and her debut Bottle Rocket Hearts. She has published three collections of poetry, The Best Ten Minutes of Your Life, Precordial Thump, and the Emily Valentine Poems. Her writing has appeared in Granta, Cosmonauts Ave, The Believer of the Cut, The Toronto Star, The Globe and Mail, and more. She is also a Canadian Screen Award-winning TV and film writer with credits on The Baroness Von Sketch Show, Shakes Creek, Degrassi, and others. Zoe's upcoming novel, The Spectacular, releases September 2021. Zoe, welcome to the show. We're really excited to have you and we're excited about the book. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. My first question is always, where are you in the world right now? As we record remote, I would love to know where you are. Sure. So I'm in Toronto in the West End in my apartment that I've been in for a year and four months. (laughs) And it's a beautiful day. And I have my two cats napping beside me. Zoe, I would love to talk about your origin story before we get into process. Obviously, you worked on a lot of other projects before this book. Can you walk us through, did you always want to be a writer? and how you came to this point? Sure. So I've always loved writing. Like One of the first things I did as a kid when I learned to write was write sort of fake novels. I grew up on a farm and my parents were sort of 70s back to the landers and they didn't really believe in television. We only had TV for like a year. And so I did a lot of reading. And I also lived in a, like near a town where most people spoke French. There were only a couple of other English kids. And so like, you know, I had to rely a lot on my own imagination. Plus, it was like the era of parenting where there was a lot of freedom for kids to do what they wanted. But yeah, so I was always a voracious reader and wanted to be a writer. I think that like by the time I got to high school, it seemed a little bit too lofty of an ambition. Like the idea that you could just decide to be a writer and aspire to it, it seemed like a little bit crazy. And I think I only really figured out that I wanted to try when I was trying to figure out what to do for university and my mom was suggesting that I think about what I loved to do when I was like three or four. And I was like, well, I don't remember. (laughs) And she said, you know, she reminded me of how much I wanted to write. And, and so that sort of clarified some things for me. You know, I started out as a poet and I sort of wrote short stories here and there, but still the idea of novelist felt like a little bit out of my league. It felt, you know, kind of like an enormous project. So it took me a while to get there. My first novel actually started as a short story. I actually sold the manuscript as a collection of short stories. And then one short story kept getting longer. And my editor, who was very kind, was like, I think you want this to be a novel, but I think you're psyching yourself out. And what if you took the project away and just tried to develop it into a longer piece? And that's sort of how I got over the confidence issue of, of not being sure that I could do it. But I put two poetry books out before my first novel, and that really was where my heart was for a long time. 
And it's still, you know, I told myself that I wouldn't put out another poetry book until I, you know, really perfected what I wanted to do. And so it's been over 10 years now that I've been wrestling with a, a new poetry project. But yeah, I'm, I'm still still hopeful that I'll, I'll get back to poetry at some point. Our episodes are always framed around themes. In this case, I would love to focus on writing spectacular. Is that cool with you? Sure, absolutely. I like to start when we talk about a new book that's releasing is doing my worst at reading a rendition of the book description. The spectacular follows Missy, her strange mother, Carola, and her grandmother, Ruth. It starts in 1997 when Missy is a cellist in an indie rock band. Carola is emerging from a sex scandal at the yoga center where she lives, and Ruth is planning a return trip to the Turkish seaside village where she grew up. Throughout the decades of the novel, the women reconnect at pivotal moments in their lives as they contemplate motherhood, love, and death. Told between flashbacks and present day, the threads of their personal histories intertwine and overlap to reveal both the stark differences and the deeply rooted intergenerational connections. I've got a few quotes. Zoe Whittall has this incredible ability to go straight at the honest, emotional heart of the story. And yet, even with that ferocity, her writing is always graceful, a total joy to read, makes it so easy to love her characters. In the best books, characters feel like my friends, but with the mothers of the spectacular, they came to feel like my family. It's from Tori Peters, author of Detransition Baby. And there's some others as well. The Spectacular is a lush, sweeping novel that excavates the maternal layers of the family's genealogy to breathtaking, surprising ends. This book will leave you with a brilliant roar inside your chest. Woodall's prose is a fire with the most complex and daring forms of empathy. That's from Alyssa Nutting, author of Made for Love. There are other reviews as well. There's a ton of them. That's really exciting. How do you feel when you're in the process of releasing a book and you get all these amazing reviews? Well, let me tell you, like, I basically shot for the moon this round. Like, I get asked to blurb a lot, and it's not always easy to do schedule wise. And so, you know, I'm aware that whenever you ask, it's just, it's a favor that they might return. But it's a really like, I always find it really hard uh, to reach out to people I admire, especially. But, you know, I've had a really great career here in Canada. And I really, my goal with this book was to try to reach beyond the borders and specifically try to reach community in the States who might be interested in the book. And so I really focused on some writers who I really admire and, and know through, through friends or, or publishers or agents or whatnot. And it just ended up like, it was like just really good luck that a lot of, of people could do it. And, and I was really like just, thrilled every single time a new quote came in and I feel like I have a lot of karma to pay back to the blurbing industry. <laughs> I would love to start to work through process. We usually like to cover everything from inception to completing the book, starting from the beginning. Where did you get the idea and what made you want to commit to that idea? Obviously writers get a lot of ideas and it's always about finding the right one that you want to live with because obviously writing a book takes a lot of time. So how did you decide to move forward with this? So it has a bit of a funny story that I had a false start with it in around 2009, 2008, 2009. I started to write it and I was inspired by this, this little book, like kind of, I guess she wouldn't have called it a chat book, but basically like a little diary that my grandmother had left behind. And there was a particularly evocative passage about how she left. She escaped during the second world war because my dad's side of the family, you know, 
has lived in Turkey since the 1700s, but his family is sort of British and French. They still sort of retain their British and French passports. It's a bit complicated. They were called like the Levantine community. And I didn't really understand much about it as a kid, about where he was from. But in 2008, I traveled back with him to meet some cousins and like see where he was born and also started to look at like some of the things that my grandmother had written. And she and I weren't actually close in real life. The character of Ruth is completely different from who she was. So I had this like really interesting journal that she left behind. And I thought, oh, that would be really interesting to incorporate into some fiction. And at the time, I was really interested in what it would be like to write an older character. At the time, I guess I would have been in my early 30s. And it was kind of a fascinating challenge to try to write somebody in their 80s who has certain wisdom, having lived that long. And also, I wanted to write someone having like a really hot affair right as their life is about to end. For some reason, that challenge was interesting to me. And so then the character Ruth sort of came to be from those two bits. And then for a while, I thought that there would be a really lengthy historical component to the novel. Like I I was going to imagine what it would have been like to be in Turkey in the 20s and sort of create her life this character's life sort of loosely based on what someone who could have been in my family. And and then I realized in the course of trying to write it that I'm just not a historical novelist. Like I, the depth of research and the attention to detail, I just couldn't quite do it. And so then I sort of put the book down for a bit and I wrote The Best Kind of People, which was my last book. So it was kind of, The Best Kind of People was a bit of a procrastination book just because I couldn't, I was blocked writing The Spectacular. And then I went back to it immediately after The Best Kind of People was out. And I was really lucky that Andra Miller, my editor at Valentine, was willing to buy the book as part of the two-book deal based on a couple of chapters and a, you know, an outline, which is something I'd never had the, the privilege of, of doing before. And it was really exciting. I always actually thought that it would be easier to sell it first and then write it. But it turns out like it also that provides its own kind of new challenges. So from there, like the character of Missy popped into my mind because I wanted to focus on, you know, because I came of age in the 90s. It's a really like my first novel was set in the 90s. It's a really interesting time period. And I've always sort of wondered what it would be like if I hadn't come out. And I came out at 18 as queer, but it was, I don't have the story that most people have where they always knew. Like, I think that if somebody hadn't If a woman hadn't expressed interest in me, I would have never known, you know, like, and it sort of feels like a bit of a a choice for me, which I know is a bit of controversial statement, but, but I was curious, like, what if, what would have happened if I had just kept living my life dating men and not, not come out until my, was in my thirties. And so that was a bit of a premise for the character of Missy. And then I was also really interested in the idea of, you know, the tensions between second wave feminism and and third wave feminism and like what it was like to be raised by second wave feminist moms who were really struggling to be the first generation of women who could quote have it all although i know it's a really middle class idea but so that was interesting to me and that's how kind of carola came to be was the idea of like what if we had this character who hasn't quite figured out her sexuality and it's really like doing that 90s third wave thing of trying to be a girl And in order to be cool and a feminist of that era, you had to sort of be as radical and and sexual as the men around you were, you know, like it's a little bit different now. And 
I kind of wanted to capture that moment of like that Riot Girl era that I remember fondly from being a teenager. And so that's sort of how Missy came to be. And specifically, like my ex-girlfriend's sister had this really interesting story of trying to get her, like knowing that she didn't want to have a baby and trying to get her tubes tied and no doctor would perform the surgery. And in real life, she was like 39 when she tried to have this done. Like it was clear she was never going to have a kid. But still, they had this like patriarchal attitude around, you know, you might regret it. And what does the specter of regret mean when it comes to the idea of, you know, being a parent or not? And so I sort of gave Missy that dilemma and wrote that first scene with that in mind, just to see where I could, where it could go, because I was really blocked on the, the character of Ruth came before Missy. But Missy was the first character that really kind of sung. Like, you know, when you put your pen on the page or you start typing and it feels like the character is flowing through you and it feels very automatic. And Missy really came to me that way. Like, like I, I almost didn't have enough time in a day to get everything down because it was like happening so fast when I was first writing her. And it was interesting to try to bookend Missy at 21 and then Missy at 38 and her different feelings in the different sections of the book. And that's sort of the, yeah, the inception story. Carola came last and everything about Carola's story was sort of like the newer thing. Like for a while it was just Missy and Ruth. And then when I finally figured out who Carola was, she also came easily, but it was a bit of a struggle to get Carola down on the page. I would love to dive into some of those things a little bit in a little more detail. As far as the outline process, you begin working on a book. Obviously, some people are more into working on outlines than others. Are you, would you say, more of a plotter than a pantser, they say? And what was the process like? How long did you spend on it? And how much do you break from it as you begin to actually get into the weeds, so to speak, and, and work on the book? It's funny. you know. I started out writing like my first novel I wrote very intuitively and I just sort of let the voices come as they, as they did. And then I edited later. So I wrote really fast and then imposed the structure and the plot later, so to speak. And then my second novel, I was, I wrote it as my MFA thesis and I was really meticulous about an outline and I ended up diverting from that outline, but the structure of the outline really gave me, it sort of, stopped me from feeling overwhelmed because sort of gave me a place to keep going. And I was able to work a little faster using the outline. But then I, then I missed the sort of magic of doing it bird by bird, you know, like the Anne Lamott used to advise. And so with the best kind of people, I did a bit of a mix of two. Like I had a bit of an outline in mind, but I allowed myself the freedom to go wherever it felt like, wherever I felt like going that day. I think because I'm a poet, I've always been like, in terms of form, I always kind of come at the story from character and from style before plot. And then sort of what happens comes later. But then between the best kind of people and the spectacular, I started writing for television. And there are some really positive things that TV writing has, has given me in terms of that has impacted my process as a prose writer. And, you know, TV is all about outlining and beat sheets and knowing exactly what you're going to get into before you write it. And there's so many, it used to drive me crazy when I started because I would be like, just let me write the script. And then, you know, network executives or, or showrunners would be like, nope, you need specific beat sheet and we need to have it perfect. You need to rewrite it 20 times before we go to script. And it was like the opposite of what I'm used to with prose. But then 
what that did when I went back, you know, because I shift between both careers, when I went back to prose, it really, I was used to figuring certain things out, you know, before expanding. And so in some ways, TV writing has helped me write plot and understand plot in a way that, you know, the cliche is that plot is, you know, not something you really think about as a literary fiction writer, or you don't think about it first, but it kind of helps. It has helped me specifically with the spectacular to, to kind of harness the chaos of, of all the character and the dialogue and the, all the elements of story that are a little bit more, you know, harder to rein in so that when you're thinking about the reader and what they're going to want to keep reading and like the editorial process and just sort of working within the constraint that you have in mind from the beginning. So with the spectacular, it was a little bit of like, I had an outline and then when the character of Ruth and the historical elements weren't working, I had to go back to the drawing board and think about it differently. And yeah, so it kind of was all over the place for a while, but like going back to try to keep outlining and keep mapping when I did reach an obstacle was helpful. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writer experience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favorite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favorite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favorite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickering Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. You mentioned character earlier, character Missy, the other characters, Carola. When you are working to flesh out characters, how much time do you spend on that? What are the questions you ask yourself? Is there a template for that? How do writers who are listening go about developing characters? Because obviously characters is just as important as plot. So how do you go about tackling, answering all those important questions so that when you sit down to write the book, you can really put yourself into the character? So yeah, I'm of the school that I think all plot has to come from character. And so you have to start there. And to me, often character will come from voice or from a voice I will hear. Like sometimes I'll have a bit of a, like an idea of who a character might be, but I won't really get to know them until I start to write out, sort of free write something in their voice. Even if I'm writing in third person, eventually often I'll write like some, some drafts in first just to get like, if I was sitting down talking to this person, if I was overhearing them talk to their friend in a cafe, what would they sound like? You know, what would their idiosyncrasies be? 
that sort of thing, like that kind of investigative thing. When I was learning to write comedy sitcoms, I was taking a class and they had this great bunch of worksheets that were like, you know, sort of backstory, sort of like the Proust questionnaire, but for your characters, which at the time felt silly. But then I ended up sometimes when I'm really stuck on a character, I'll go back to those worksheets and like think through all these ideas about like what their personal philosophies will be and like what they ate for lunch in grade two or things that sort of you never end up on the page, but you know, help to create a rich character nonetheless, because you know where they're coming from and where they want to go. But ultimately, like so much, I think because of my poetry background, when it comes down to what ends up on the page, it's a lot about language and, you know, the kind of particulars of how the character shows up on the page through the style that I, you know, through the formal considerations that I decide on as I'm writing. So there's like a lot of messy character writing at first. And then there's a pause where I think about like, how do I want this story to be told? What kind of language do I want to use? What kind of form do I want to use? You know, and sometimes the formal consideration will help me to further deepen the character that I may have thought of as one kind of person to start with and then grows. Like, for example, the struggle I was having with Ruth, the older character, was that she just kept sounding like a wooden version of what a young person would think an old person would sound like, you know, like, like the other characters would flow and then we would get to Ruth and it would be like, suddenly she would be kind of corny and wooden. And then I realized that like quite late in the process of writing the spectacular, I realized that like she couldn't really, her sections couldn't be written in the way with the same point of view considerations and the same, the same way. It just couldn't be written the same way. So in that way, I felt like I had been reading a lot of work last summer that were sort of fragmentary. Like I was reading Sarah Manguso and Kate Zambrino and, you know, work that was very spare, but evocative and sort of clipped, like short sentences, brief philosophical ponderings, like just funny little, like fragments, literary fragments, like a poem. And I sort of reimagined Ruth using that voice, that sort of literary fragment style and then she became real like it was it was sort of like the formal like shifting the form kind of closed the distance between the authorial voice and the character voice like I became it was as though I was like acknowledging like as the artist I'm acknowledging that I cannot quite understand what it's like to be 83 and by choosing this form it's going to like cop to that you know like there was no way I was really going to nail that point of view. And so here are some fragments of of Ruth in this way where you'll still kind of have this mystery, but it will still be more clear. I don't know if that makes sense, but somehow shifting the form made Ruth come alive. And that was something that hadn't happened before that late in the process. As far as sitting down to write the book itself, once you've done your outlining process, you have your characters and you're really sitting down to power through that first draft. What does that look like and how detailed do you get into it? Because I know for a lot of writers, it can be a real struggle to get to that first pass. Sometimes it takes just letting go a little bit to get there so that you can then later passes, put more and more detail in and refine it. For you, what was your process like? I'm often a quick first draft writer. Like I remember that beautiful Zadie Smith essay where she's like, there's two types of writers and one is the one where they write meticulous sentences and they edit as they go. 
And then by the end of the first draft, it's done. And I'm not like that at all. I'm like, I think it might be an ADHD thing. Like I just, I just go, like, I'll be like, she's in the house. And then later I will go back to be like, what does the house look like? What does she think of the house? What is the texture? You know, all the sensory details that you might gloss over in the first draft. Or like, there's a level of specificity that I only really get to in the second draft. Because it's just such a psychological hurdle to get a draft done. And there's so much like, you know, the inner narrator that's, you know, chattering in your voice and all the self-esteem issues you've ever had or like worries about your career or like, can you do it? Is this the right book? Like all those things that you have to silence just to get it done. And I think like, I'm really lucky at this point in my career that I don't have, I don't have to have another job unless I want to knock wood that that keeps going. But like, I have a lot of time to really, really go deep into projects and get them done. Whereas before, like my first two books, I would write in the mornings and at night and struggled to have the actual time to devote. But now that I do have the time, it's just... I write a messy first draft. And sometimes it means like I go back and I look at that messy first draft and I'm like, wow, it was like a kind of a ghostly apparition of what it was eventually going to become. But it's really just like a pile of sticks and dirt. And then later on, it becomes an object, you know, but getting that first messy draft done is like, that helps. Like, I can't remember who said it. Somebody said something great where it's like the only responsibility that first draft has is to be finished. It doesn't have to be good. You don't have to show anyone. It just has to exist. And that really guides that first draft for me. And it's also fun. Like to me, the first draft is the most playful time because it's only later you have to go back with your like discerning teacher editorial eye and be like, well, this is crazy. You know, (laughs) we have to rein this in. But the freedom of that first draft is really fun for me. I love that you mentioned the specificity of going back in that second draft and talking about the sensory details, because I think a lot of people don't necessarily think about breaking it into phases like that. For you, when you go back through to work on that second draft and you're working on, like I said, the sensory details, how do you go about describing things and what does the detail look like? And in that second draft, do you then try to make that wording perfect? Or is there yet another draft where you take that additional content and refine it even more. Yeah, that second draft, for example, it's like it's almost like the first draft I'm trying to get the paragraphs down and then the second draft I'm looking at the sentence. And it's sort of like the syntactical puzzles of the sentence and also the specific imagery. So in my last book there was a scene about a guy who takes a gun to a school and in that first draft it was just very basic about like who is he, where is he going, what's he thinking, just very like basic cues to get me there. And the second draft was about like, there's a rip in his shoe. It's raining. He can feel how wet his foot is. You know, he wrote his drug dealer's number on a pizza box, like just very specific things that will anchor you into the scene and make you want to keep reading because when things are too general, you know, it's that thing you kind of teach when you're teaching creative writing, like you want to step away from the generalities and the more specific things you can anchor in a scene, the more interesting it will be and the more interesting your sentences will become. And so, yeah, the second draft is about nailing more of that specificity, getting the details right. And then the third draft is more about just refining. Like it's like every step is a little bit more refinement and a little bit more. I find in the third draft, second, third draft, some of the style comes out in terms of the structure of the sentences and how the rhythm and the prosody and the the way you want to hear it out loud and 
and you take away even more of those generalities and like laziness. I had a great teacher in my MFA, Michael Winter, who who said like, go through your draft and take out every smile. Every time someone smiles, every time someone shrugs, like any kind of lazy tick that you have. And there are so many that we have and like so many that writers in particular, we all have our own weird things that we'll put in as a shorthand in a scene. And like, it's funny to go back and realize like, I make characters smile all the time because I don't want to do the work of, in that moment, I don't want to do the work of really like explaining or showing emotion through other ways, you know, and in ways that might ultimately be more powerful. As a TV writer, you mentioned some of the differences on the outline phase, but as of actually writing, when you write for TV, would you say you go through the drafts similarly in any way? And then also, and this is somewhat unrelated, but I know that the key difference between screenwriting and authoring a book is that on a book, you can say what the characters are thinking. Can you walk us through some of the similarities and differences of actually writing a script versus a book? Sure. I mean, the biggest difference, it depends on the show and it depends on if it's my own show or another show. But yeah, there are some like kind of fundamental differences about, you know, when you're writing entertainment versus when you're working on a piece of art, but then hopefully the kind of shows I really want to work on do like straddle that art and entertainment. And but basically like there's so many different approaches to dialogue because screenwriting is so much a lot about dialogue and about making sure you get into that scene as fast as possible and leave as fast as possible. Like there's a real economy and there's also everything is about conflict. Like every scene is about conflict. There's not a lot of room for, you know, and there's so much about, you know, in prose writing, there's so many things that, you know, are in the director's hands on screen, you know, like what the room looks like, what the, there's only so many words you could put on a page and there's so much constraint in terms of like what you need to get done in a certain amount of pages. TV writing ends up feeling more like a bit of a puzzle and it's about like, also because so much of it is done by committee, unless you're a showrunner, like I've had the experience of watching an episode that has my name on it, where like, I don't, I didn't write those jokes, you know, like it's so collaborative. And there's a freedom in that because, you know, you can't be self-protective the way you are as a prose writer. But every character, every scenario in a TV show has been written by, you know, 10 people if you're in Canada, 20 if you're in the States. And like, it's so... It's so different. It's just, I don't know. You have to, in TV, you have to be able to think so much quicker and think through. And also, you have to be able to quickly abandon ideas. You know, you have to be an idea machine and then you have to be able to let go of something you thought was brilliant and just move on to the next thing. So it's really such a different process. But in some ways, they can help, you know, working in both can kind of help each other sometimes. Like, especially in terms of like creating character or like writing a pitch for a TV show or trying to come up with an original idea. I think having been a prose writer, that can only help you in the imagination stage and in the pitching stage. But the specific skills you need to write a really good script are different for sure. And I'm still figuring it out because like I've only been in the TV game for six years and it's such a hard competitive industry. Zoe, before you go, I would love to ask you a couple bonus questions. First one, we always ask if you could take any writer to any restaurant. Gosh, I just, I really admire Ali Smith. And I think it would be fascinating to have ice cream with her and just chat about style. 
I don't know. I think she's so innovative and her work blows my mind. So I think I would choose Dairy Queen with Ali Smith. Love that. I don't think we've gotten a Dairy Queen before. So that's the first <laughs> for the podcast. The last question we always ask is if you could choose one learning or insight from your entire career to pass along to the writers who are listening right now, what's the one piece of advice you would choose? Okay. So the one piece of advice that I would choose, it's twofold. One is that nobody cares about your book as much as you do. And you also can't control how your book is read. Like once it is out of your hands and it's actually an object in the world, you have to be able to let go. And it's ultimately a gift that people are going to read it in ways that you had not intended. And you're going to get strange emails and like weird assumptions and very bananas Q&A questions. But there's a bit of a freedom in just acknowledging that lack of control. And with regards to no one caring about your book as much as you do, like that's just also a way of letting, of letting go and being able to enjoy when people do care. That's what I tell students when I used to teach creative writing. And I think it serves me well also to remember those two things when I'm starting to promote a book. And it's sort of a wild, it's always wild to go out into the world after having been home by yourself for years and then to go out and interact about the work. So those are two things that help me. The last most important question, Zoe, did you have fun talking to us today? I had so much fun. This was great. Like, as I said, I don't know if I said it on recording, but this is my first interview about The Spectacular. And I feel like nervous and excited. And I was so thrilled when Beth told me you were interested in interviewing me. And I'm really thankful. Absolutely. And it's always fun to nerd out over the details of writing. And it can be therapeutic when you've just been in your head writing all the time. You actually step out of it and talk about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. If you're listening, it's always novel. Spectacular release September 2021. Please check it out. Go find the spectacular and support Zoe. Thank you. Did you want to plug anything else? Social media website? Sure. You can find me on Instagram, Zoe Whittle. Actually, is that it? I have a link tree that is up and I'm on Twitter as well. Those are my two things. That's about it. Awesome. Zoe, thank you so much. Really appreciate you coming on to talk about writing. We had a lot of fun. Appreciate your insights and congrats on the book. And we'd love to have you back on when you're working on the next book, which I believe you had mentioned before the podcast that you were starting. Did you want to plug that? Sure. Yes. Right now, provisionally, it's called The Fake. And it's, I don't know if it's going to be a bit of a thriller, which is new for me, about two people who encounter the same pathological liar and it throws the course of their lives off track. Awesome. As we just discussed, we know your process. We're excited to see how it adapts to the next one. But until then, thanks for everything. And we look forward to having you back on soon. Thank you. Have a great day, guys. Awesome. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.